0: I got to go down to Guatemala um, along with the rest of the team. And I'm just really grateful for Randy and Nancy Surrett. Um, They put a lot of work in uh, in order to make this happen and a ton of the logistics. Um, It was also really difficult uh, because Nancy is the boss lady. And she has a daughter named Katie who is also the boss lady. And at some junctures... We were just sitting around waiting, determining which Nancy was going to make a decision for the rest of us. And then we just did whatever Randy said. And so it turned out really well. Um, I appreciate everybody that went. Um, If you don't know Chewy, he's a completely different person whenever he's able to speak his native language. I heard him speak a hundred times more uh, in Guatemala than I've ever heard him here, which totally makes sense. And um, it's just such a blessing. I didn't know what to do with all the kids. The Robertsons took a whole horde of them. And I was nervous about that. But it actually was one of the coolest aspects of the whole deal. And just seeing the kids have a heart for the Lord's work and to get in to serve was was truly one of the best blessings of it. That being said, um, the thing uh, as a lead-in that I was least looking forward to uh, was when we did team meeting planning... They, the nurses, whoever they be, we took four people from Oklahoma, joined with our team. We had about 22 people total. The nurses decided that one of the things that they needed down there was sex education. And when that came up in our team meeting, I have never volunteered someone so fast as I volunteered Cody to do that. And so they wanted us to go into the school and do sex education. I was like, oh, cool. You know, Cody would be amazing. All right, and so uh, it gets to the day before, and Katie just comes to me and is like, "So you're doing sex education with middle school boys tomorrow?" And I, um, in the quiet words of the Virgin Mary, come again. Uh, and so, so he comes in there, and I'm just dreading it. And um, but Cody's like, "Be a team player, just get in there, and do it." I, can't. I? Just here's my thing: I didn't understand why I was necessary. Right? Chewy speaks Spanish. Like, they're including me, and I don't know why. Like, why have the gringo involved at all when I'm just going to say it in English, and then Chewy's going to translate it in Spanish. So, we show up to this school, which a part of what sending people there does, it funds like seven teachers to keep this school by the trash dump open. And I go into the school, and it's me and Chewy on a team, and I'm trying to not say inappropriate things so they get middle school boys laughing, my wife wrote the curriculum, and it was pictures, all right, about what happens in puberty and different body parts and all of this stuff. And we begin to share this thing. And I, I just felt in that moment, as a communicator, inadequate, all right? And these boys are just looking at me, and I am giving it a go. And I'll tell you, um, walking away from that, it ended up probably being one of my favorite things that I did in the whole trip. Because at the end of it, we had extra time, and I began to share a little bit from God's word about how God created sexuality powerful. It will either powerfully bless your life, or there is nothing that will curse your life more. Sharing testimonies and and this stuff, and I felt like it was one of the clearest opportunities to share the gospel uh, with this young man that I could not. And basically, they're either going to make or break the next generation of that community. And what's crazy about that is that I thought that it was the least important speaking engagement that I would do the whole trip. And it became, um, maybe for me, the most special. I say that because I want to build towards the comments of the centurion, who, from a Jewish perspective, from everything that's going on at the cross, looks like his commentary is able to be thrown away, and yet, I I would argue, as the book of Mark starts, it says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the book starts, with proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, and the way that Jesus ends his life and lays down his life on the cross, it's going to cause the centurion to say this exact same thing. And as a matter of like what he has to say is not disposable. It's actually the whole point of why we've been taking this trip through the book. That you would encounter Jesus who is the Son of God. So I want to get there, but I want to finish a couple things that happen at the, of, at the end of Jesus' time upon the cross and into the laying down of his life and set the context for maybe why the centurion saying this is so stark and jarring. Okay, so let's pray and then we're going to jump into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Earth here in Bayfield, earth here in Colorado, in the United States, in Guatemala, in France, in Timbuktu, into the very edges of the earth. And so God, usher your kingdom now here into our hearts through the preaching of your word. May uh, my brothers and sisters here not hear a man speaking. And may my friends that have gathered with us not hear a man speaking. But may they ultimately and definitively hear your Holy Spirit speaking. And so God, let us attune our ear to heaven through what you have said in your word. May it be a light to us. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now and be the pastor in Jesus' name. Everybody said... And let's jog just a little bit. Last week we talked about the scene in the cross and what transpired in the cross. Jesus was beaten by professional Navy SEAL-like soldiers, tenderized like you would do meat before a barbecue. Then he is going to have his back shredded open by a scourging that at times would lock and rip ribs out of the back of its victims. He would be whipped and then applied to that open back would be a recycled piece of wood, a crossbeam, that had maybe urine and blood and sweat and tears applied in splinters to the back of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, even before he gets to the cross, looks like he had a head-on collision with a cheese grater, marred beyond human likeness. He is, from Old Testament language, like the ram caught in the thicket Who was the sacrifice that God provided for himself. He is dressed in the crown of thorns. He is a king who is coming to die for you criminals. And for criminals like me. And as he goes to that cross, he is absolutely disgraced. Whatever amount of humiliation could be applied to a human, he experienced from the jokes where he's made into an SNL skit... To the mockery, to his clothes being gambled for underneath his feet as he's dying. His dignity is removed, which is what sin does. Not his sin, your sin. And here is this Jesus suffering with pierced hands and feet, bleeding out in Mark 15. He is likely close to eye level so people can hurl their accusations nearly to his face. He's treated like a clown at a circus. Ripped open, exposed. His mockers, they tell jokes, and as it was read by my brother, they spit on him and they wag their heads at him like like dogs. Crucifixion put nine-inch nails in the nerve center of the wrist, hands, and feet sensitive places, and he would have to pull up in order to breathe. People die on the cross of suffocation. And so we discussed what this cross would have looked like. At the end, we learned from the other gospel accounts that the other two thieves had not died yet, and so they broke their legs. Jesus had already died, and so they took a spear underneath the ribcage and pierced his heart sack such that blood and water Poured out. Paul. In the New Testament. Is going to say. About Christianity. We preach Christ. Crucified. Like. This is our man. This is our God. This is our message. Christ. And him crucified. This is. Can somebody testify in here. The turning point of your life. This has changed your story. And there's more than one of us in here. So what is that about? Like how do you reconcile. Like question. How do bad things happen to good people? And I'm going to argue. There's only one good person right here. And he signed up. For bad things to happen to him for bad people like us. See, we got this whole good people, bad thing, bad people thing mixed up. There is not a ton of good people walking around. There's just one. Just one. And so, okay, let's talk about bad things happening to him, but he signed up for it. So that he might reconcile to himself. And make good a bunch of wicked, evil people like us. And if that is not your perspective of religion or Christianity, you've got the message wrong. He comes and says, we preach this. We preach Christ crucified. So I ended last time in chapter 15, verse 34, with what's called the cry of dereliction. He utters this Eloi, Eloi, lema Sebekah. Why do I even try it? I don't speak Aramaic. All right. Which means, my God, my God, why have, why, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus forsaken? That's the question. He raises up and wants us to know a couple last things from the cross. This and it is finished, which we get from other gospels. So why is he going to suffer pain in his nerve centers in order to, the Bible says, make a loud cry of this verse? Why? He wants us to grapple and ponder this question. Why is this person, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, suffering this torment? Now, I argue that this is him quoting Bible. And I hit into that last time. A lot of people start to make all kinds of theories about was the Godhead severed and did Jesus, you know, was he rejected by the Father and things. I, I think that at simplicity, we could be like the people even in this chapter saying, well, I think he's calling Elijah. We could misinterpret just like the people standing around. But at minimum, he's quoting Psalm 22. So let's turn there uh, in a hurry. Psalm 22. Right before everybody's favorite 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Everybody's got that one, but nobody's got Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is at the lips of David, but this is not exclusively and ultimately about David. It is a prophecy of the suffering Messiah to come. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. Notice, they thought Elijah was going to come save him because there was a superstition that righteous people, when they suffer, Elijah would come and help them. Jesus is not on the cross needing somebody else to save him. He's on the cross doing the saving. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Notice that Jesus has been in trial all, he was arrested at night and been in trial all night. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here's what he's saying. If you call to God as his people, he does answer. So whatever is going on in this forsakenness is in no way meant to say that God is not reactive to the prayers of his people. He's like, listen, there's a track record of all of church history that God answers the prayers of his people. So don't get it twisted. There is something unique here in the fact that God is not inter- intervening to rescue Jesus off of the cross. God is putting him there. Now, six, I but I am a worm and not a man. Does that not describe what we just said about the crucifixion? Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, what's your Bible say? Mock me. They make mouths at me. You know what that is? You ever had like a little kid that like disfigures their, their mouths? They, exact same word here, wag their heads. That's exactly the language in Greek that Mark describes how they're wagging their heads. They're making jokes and shaking their heads at Jesus. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in Him. Is that not the accusation they made against Jesus? If you're such a righteous man, why won't God get you off that cross? Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb and you made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb I have, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Jesus set apart from birth, born to die, as fully God, fully man. Twelve, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. There's power players that have surrounded Jesus. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. Does that not describe the Sanhedrin? 14, and I am poured out like water. Jesus already described himself as a drink offering poured out. This is picture of Passover sacrifices and rituals that existed in the Old Testament. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast where he would take a spear and blood and water would pour out. My strength is dried up like a pot short. Pot, pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Do you notice that they offered Jesus a drink in his dehydration as he is bleeding out on the cross? For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. He is dying amongst transgressors and Roman soldiers and thieves on the cross. Listen to this. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now this is a problem here. If you're, not, if you're a secular person that does not believe in the Bible. This is a problem because pierced hands and feet. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon. Describes crucifixion. The problem is at the time David wrote this. Crucifixion had not been invented yet. He's prophesying about pierced hands and feet. Before crucifixion is even a thing. So what is he talking about? if not the cross. I can count all of my bones. Now that may, that seems like a weird phrase. Like some of you talk about counting the hairs of your head. Nobody talking about counting their bones. This is a Hebrew phrase that has to do with none of his bones being broken. Which makes the whole idea that they didn't break his legs, but pierced him with the spear more significant. Are you tracking I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for clothing they cast lots. This never happened to David. This is not about David. What do you do with this? That they're going to gamble at the feet of Jesus, cast lots for his clothes. So I would argue, at minimum, okay, go back to Mark. We could keep going through that a little bit. let's keep it moving. At minimum, Jesus is quoting, looking back to Old Testament Scripture so that they would understand what was happening on the cross. So that when they understood why is this, when they got asked the question why, they would come to the place that God has ordained this. God has done this. Sure, Romans are involved. Sure, the great Sanhedrin involved. But they are simply pawns in the hand of a sovereign God who has offered up His Son like Isaac who carried the wood to His own sacrifice. That they would see God in the murder and the death and the surrender of Jesus. Here's the thing. This Psalm 22 and this cry of dereliction from the cross is explained perfectly in 2 Corinthians chapter five verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's it. He is forsaken, and the question is rightly answered. Why was he forsaken? For us? Have you answered that question? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Not your grandmama's answer. Not what your pastor thinks or what your friends think. Have you answered the question of why was Jesus forsaken with for me? Because otherwise it is a true historical event, but you have not been converted by it. For me. Forsaken. Um, there's a slide up. I think the guys might have it. Um, in 1616 to 1619, there was a guy named Rembrandt, which I know all of you are drastically familiar with as artsy fartsy people from Colorado. All right. Rembrandt did a pa- famous painting called The Raising of the Cross. Uh, he completed this for uh, Frederick Henry of Old. And it's in Europe today. You can go there. Now, you may not be an historian. But looking at this painting, which Rembrandt was great with dark shades and, and light and darkness. So you see how light Christ is and how dark kind of everything else sets in the back. Um, he, he worked with light and darkness all the time. And when we get to this, there's something in blue standing out. Like, you may not know anything about first century Judaism or what happened in the first century, But you might be able to guess that they didn't dress in a blue beret. Right? Got one of those. Oh, I just kicked the offering. Um, Got one of those frilly coats that they did in the 16th century. Who is that? Who is that in a blue beret raising up the cross to crucify Jesus? It's Rembrandt. It's Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Had the raising a cross, and you could argue this is him telling the world what his self-portrait really was. Why was Jesus crucified? Because I did it. My sin was such that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for me. And now I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Why is He going to the cross? Isaiah 53 says that He was forsaken for our transgressions, beaten for our iniquities. He's not church suffering or being forsaken. Christ is being. Forsaken for our sin." This word "forsaken gets us. It's a word that has a sense of which we could say is hell. He is experiencing a sense of hell for us. When we talk about God's wrath, we're, oftentimes we talk to describe hell as fire or flames. we're usually talking about the sense of his wrath, his justice towards evil. When we talk about forsakenness, though, and we describe hell, we're talking about being alone, in darkness, separated. Forsakenness is that there is a complete and utter separation from us. Here's one thing that maybe people have wrong um, ideas about. Hell is not necessarily the absence of God. Hell is the absence of God's grace, It's the presence of his justice. It's the presence of his holiness without filter. Uh, Let me go further. Hell is not a place where Christ is not remembered. Hell is a place where Christ is not accessible. Because as we read in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there is a great chasm fixed. And that they are in utter, what's the Bible say? Darkness. Matthew 22 describes hell as a place of utter darkness. Darkness. Right? Now, think about this. Matthew, in his account of darkness coming on the land at the 6th through the ninth hour, that's the midday sun. That's basically noon to 3 o'clock. When the sun should have been at its brightest, and the, the, the most amount of light should have been present, when the sun is at its highest and there should be light everywhere, it says that a darkness that terrified people took over the land. It should be bright, but it's dark. Darkness, in Old Testament terms, is is a sense of judgment of God. Darkness took the land. Now, for most of us, we forgot, but our kids remember, the first thing that you were terrified of. It was darkness. Some of you put your kids to bed at night, and you turn on six spotlights in their room like i don't know how they sleep like a deer in headlights but they're afraid of the dark and so you put on 14 night lights right you outgrow that and now you can't sleep unless it's pitch black you got tenfold on your windows but for most of us one of the first things that terrified us was in our room alone in the dark it's terrifying, right? Kids, listen, your parents were just as scared of the dark as you are, all right? There's hope for you. It says that it should have been midday, but it was, it was darkness. So let, let's think about this for a minute. In the beginning was obscurity. It was chaos, darkness. And God, in the beginning, said, let there be light. Or the Old Testament blessing. Like the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The epistles, they blessed each other by saying, let the light of Christ shine on you. John chapter 3, and this is judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works or their deeds were evil. Darkness. So this looks backwards to stuff like Old Testament Egypt, another Passover, firstborn dying, sacrificial lamb. Looks back to Egypt when darkness covered the land in judgment, And it looks forward to tribulation, revelation, and judgment to come. And it says definitively that in this moment, God is taking the darkness that you deserve. The forsakenness, where you have no light of God in your life, that forsakenness is descending upon Jesus, praising. That you should never have a relationship with God. You should be forsaken forever. And his, your forsakenness and darkness is being poured on him so that for eternity you will be with him in the light. This is awesome. Do you understand that when it talks about people outside of Christ, unbelievers, that they are forsaken ultimately and forever? And that is rough. And you know what? You know what's um, equally stark but beautiful is that in Hebrews, God says, "I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not ever, ever forsaking you. You're not going there. Because we're riding and dying together. You will have light." You will have relationship. We say that all the time. Christianity is about relationship. But does it hit us that we could be without a relationship to him? We could be forsaken. And yet because of this man, Jesus Christ, we are not forsaken. That God died for us that we might be one with him. I don't, know if we, I don't know if we've digested that. But we're not to the soldier yet. Not to the soldier yet. Verse 36 says, um, Interesting, someone ran up and filled the sponge with sour wine. Now this is not wine mixed with myrrh earlier. That's sort of like a narcotic that helped, tried to help take the pain away. Jesus rejected that while carrying the cross. This is a sponge filled with sour wine. They gave it to him to drink, saying wait, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. Scholars have kind of two different positions on what's happening here. One is, Jesus is dehydrated as prophesied in Psalm 22. They're trying to give him something to drink so that he would be able to endure a little bit further and they could see how this Elijah thing plays out. I think that's feasible, possible. Other scholars, I find this one interesting, understood that soldiers carried a sponge in their kit. So you got your backpack and your a Boy Scout and things that you had to have in that backpack, a sponge was one of it. And they used sour wine as a disinfectant. It was essentially toilet paper in the first century. So they would take this sponge, sour wine on it, and they would use it to cleanse themselves after going number two. And some scholars believe that as Jesus is quoting Scripture, and as Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as Jesus is saying, It is finished they're putting that toilet paper on a sponge and ramming it into his mouth. And if you want to see how the world reacts to its God and his word, you look nothing further than that right there. I don't know. Here's what I think is really key and, and do know. And... Um, Look down in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. We know that he, at the end, says, it is finished, which I'll come back to. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way, it's the way that he breathed his last. In this way, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So let's back up. If you've got the slideshow, bring up, uh, go ahead and bring that up. So we have this curtain inside of the temple. Some history about this, this veil. Solomon's temple, it was around 30 cubits high. Go back one. Um, and 1 Kings 6.2, Herod increased it by at least the height of 40 cubits. Some would say that that would make it, uh, Josephus writing, um, early historian would say that the temple curtain was four inches thick and somewhere between 60 to 80 feet tall all right and um it was scarlet it had twisted linen and so this temple um, was um or sorry this curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place so i want you to envision right now your grandmama's curtains And then just put those dudes on steroids. Like for me, uh, I recently saw Pam Foster and saw her house. She got the thickest curtains of anybody that I know. And I'm just sitting there looking at that thing saying, how would somebody tear this like you're the power team with a phone book? Right? How are you going to tear this curtain? Imagine a hundred Persian curtains or rugs just kind of woven together. And you're going to tear that dude? You struggle to open a bag of chips, right? A milk carton makes you look dumb. You've hulked a whole bag of cereal onto the ground. Like, how are you going to tear this curtain? It was a police barrier that separated. Only the high priest could go. Go to the next slide. Only the high priest could go in there once a year on Yom Kippur. Can you go to the next one? Uh, Only once a year. So you would go from... The holy place. And that red thing would be the temple. That's where they would go. Go to the next slide. This is kind of a tear back. Look how tall that curtain is. And you're going to rip that dude? Go to the next one. This curtain represented separation between God and man. That if you go into God's holy presence with sin. His holiness smoked you. You ain't living Past that. And yet in this account, it says that the curtain was ripped from bottom to top. Is that what your Bible says? Right? From top to bottom. Which begs the question, who ripped the curtain? God did. God turned what was a police barrier into a portal to enter his presence. God ripped up the whole system and says there's no more sacrifices Jesus' is sacrifice. No more high priest. Jesus is the high priest. There's no more mediating temple between us. Jesus is the temple through which you have access into my presence. Jesus kicked open the door so that you might have access to him. You might have access to him. You got all access, Christian, in the blood of Jesus. You got VIP status. And the old covenant of separation is not coming back. It's not. I gotta gotta share this. I know we're going long, but this is wild. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, do you know what group of people in large numbers were getting saved? The priests. Now, why is that significant? Tons of the priests were getting saved in Acts chapter 7. Said many of them believed. Why is that significant? Who would have known that the curtain was even torn? You couldn't go in there. The only people that would have been able to have access to it and have known that this curtain had torn was the priests. And many of those people, I don't doubt, were prepared to have their hearts ripped open and to be converted Because they saw what God did to that veil. It's powerful. Likely. They saw it all. The last guy. And we're done. 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man... Was the Son of God. Now, some people would say, well, maybe he's talking in Roman terms. He's like Hercules. Maybe he's maybe he's a God fear and he's been attending synagogue and he has even the Hebrew language to do this. People don't know what to do with this observation, and I think they kind of miss the point. This cat was a professional killer. He had very likely saw thousands of people die overseen thousands of people dying. He probably killed beyond his own numbers so many. He had seen how many? 10,000 breed their last? When Spartacus fell, they crucified 6,000 in a single day over a 120-mile stretch. He's a centurion. He directs men to murder people on crosses. Furthermore, he's been here the whole time. He was there, the trial, the beatings. He probably set up the beatings. He probably organized the scourging. What did he not see? He saw the SNL skit when they were mocking him. They saw Jesus have mockery after mockery hailed at him. He sat there and heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He saw them breathe his last. He saw the whole thing. By the way, you know who didn't see it? Most of his disciples. There's a whole lot of his boys that aren't seeing what the centurion has seen. They've run. Because he struck the shepherd and they fled. But he got the whole whole movie start to finish, plus the bonus edit credit scenes at the end. And here's what his commentary says. His commentary is exactly what Mark says the book is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How many people had he seen die and he didn't say that? How many had he seen scream and writhe in pain and, and, and defend themselves and spit back at people? How many did he see and he'd never said that about them? He's like a butcher. That's why you can't, you know, you can't have butchers on juries. They just see too many limbs get chopped off. They get desensitized. He's familiar with death. He sees it all the time. But this guy sees Jesus, breathe his last, and it messes with him. He says there's something divine about it, there's something holy about it. There's something godlike about it. I've told this before, but I think it bears repeating. I was raised by my grandparents partially, and my grandmother was the greatest Christian woman I ever knew, and um, my grandpa was a great Christian man. And Uh, I remember I was at work and they called me when my grandmother was dying. And I left work instantly, drove way over the speed limit, got to the hospital. Um, A great sister um, who I know was taking care of my grandmother and she had just been resuscitated enough that I could actually see her one last time before I did it. I just believe it was completely a God arranged thing. I come into the room and I will never forget this. You left one part of the building and you walked into her room and I can tell you right now there was a peace in the room that is it was it was tangible you you walked in that room and it was it was a cloud was in there that you couldn't see of peace and I remember her as I walked to her bed she grabbed my arm she, she'd been out she came conscious grabbed me and said, Colby, trust the Lord. He's been faithful to me my whole life. He's trustworthy. Trust the Lord. He'll be good to you. Trust the Lord. And then she died. And I'll tell you right now, I have never recovered from the way my grandmother died. I've seen lots of people die. I'm a pastor. I've I've seen the opposite of that too. I've seen, terrified, with no hope, no confidence, no joy, you walk into the room and it is darkness. And I've walked into the room and there has been light. See, it's not just how you live that preaches the gospel. Sometimes it's the way that you die. Jesus died well. In John 19, as he was dying, he said, It is finished. It's the end, but the end is not really the end, is it? This finished word is where we get the Greek word teleos or tetelestai. It is finished. It's where we also get television, telegraph. It's the idea of running its course. It goes from one thing to the next, it finishes its race, it comes to the end. Here's another word. It's over. It started, but it's over. And Jesus says, it's finished. It started. I started the gospel. I have finished the gospel. And I'm ending it like this. With a loud, resounding testimony to the glory of God. And there's a centurion. There's a soldier with every excuse in the world to be desensitized, familiar with it, and to overlook it. And he says, that's the son of God. That's a king dying for criminals, like me. So here's the question, and we're going to end here. Have you ever looked at the way that Jesus breathed his last and said anything within the ballpark of what the centurion said? That's the Son of God. Have you seen how Jesus is different? Have you seen how he's on the cross for you, and that made a difference to you? That changed you? Have you seen the crimes that you have committed against others and against your creator nailed to the cross? And have you there raised your hand in proclamation and said, truly this man is the son of God? Let me pray for you. If you're here and, and God has brought you here And you have never laid down your sin at the foot of the cross and believed on the Lord Jesus who died for those sins and received a new start from Him, a new life from Him. I want to invite you to believe the gospel today that for thousands of years has changed people's lives. Lives like mine. Lives like others that have been here. If that's you and you've never confessed Christ as your Lord, but you feel the Holy Spirit working on you, would you just, in your heart right now, surrender to Him? Would you confess Him and begin this relationship that will never end with Him? Just between you and him. If that's you and you're here, I'd love to pray for you. If you're a Christian here and you've gotten so familiar with the cross... you've come to ignore it, forget it, make it something it's not. Maybe it's time for you to confess all over again and remember the great debt that he paid. I'd love to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your court with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. And that's no small thing because you kicked open the door that we might have our prayers heard and answered through the shed blood of Jesus. You tore the veil that our prayers might even reach your ears. The sin that so easily separated us, you have removed through the cross. And so all praise be to Jesus, the Son of God, who came and died for criminals and sinners like us. Father, we come and I pray for those here Who have never trusted Christ. And stand in a relationship of forsakenness. Separated from you. God, Holy Spirit, would you come. Tear down the barriers. Chisel hard hearts. Give new life. And save people here, Lord. And for my brothers and sisters here. That have sin that is abiding. That needs repented of. God, would you bring repentance and refreshment and remind them how sweet a thing it is to dwell in your presence and have access to you. God, renew this church. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. Would you stand and respond in worship?